to this first episode. My name is David, and I'm joined by... I'm Aaron. And? Logan Barnett. And we are here, uh, sort of as an experiment, to talk about functional programming, hopefully from a perspective that doesn't get talked about a lot. This isn't really to, um, this isn't for people who are advanced functional programmers. It's more of a discussion about functional programming and sort of a journey. Uh, we're all kind of at different points in this journey. Uh, some of us, you could argue, aren't even on that journey. Um, we have kind of a representative sample, hopefully, to to kind of talk about these ideas and uh, what might make them good ideas or bad ideas for different applications. And in this first episode, we're talking pretty broadly about the idea of functional programming uh, in the large, and then we can get into some specifics. And then future episodes, our plan is to be a lot more specific about topics. So if, for example, you've heard about maybe, but you don't really know what is involved with that or partial application or, or things like that, we'll have episodes that are a little more specific and hopefully then can be very short, almost like reference material uh, for your learning process. But since this is the first episode, it's a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit bigger, a little bit longer. So I'd like to start off just by introducing ourselves. So uh, Logan, tell us tell us about yourself and what your involvement with functional programming is. Uh, right now, I am, my, my current incarnation is I am a JavaScript engineer. I do uh, rich UI type stuff. Sometimes I jump in and do a little bit of Node. Um, I have been writing in a functional style. Uh, React was kind of my introduction to that. And then Redux and Ramda have both been huge helpers in that. I've been doing imperative code before that for 11, 12 years prior. All right. And what about you, Aaron? Uh, so I'm primarily a .NET developer. I've kind of dallied in all kinds of uh, different languages, but generally keep coming back to .NET and have very little to no knowledge about functional programming. Just uh, very, very briefly read small articles on it and uh, touched on it. So I'm basically coming in as, as totally fresh. Okay. And then I, uh, David, and I do also JavaScript development primarily, although it's desktop-based through Electron, so desktop applications. And I've been using PureScript, which is a pure functional programming language, in those applications. So I'm sort of, uh, like Logan, I'm doing functional style programming in JavaScript, but then I'm also using a language that is a uh, one of these pure functional languages. So we kind of have people at different, doing you know different applications of functional. Um, none of us are like the you know person who remembers back in the day in Haskell, you know, 15 versions ago, and helped write the compiler. Uh, but we're all sort of at least interested in the ideas of functional programming and uh, want to know, want to learn from each other and, and learn more about functional programming in general. So for this first episode, uh, we're talking about just the sort of what are the core ideas about functional programming? Like I was at a, like a social thing the other night and I had someone I had on my name badge, you know, ask me about and I write functional programming because um, that's generally the kind of thing I would do. And I, someone came up and said, oh, you know, functional programming. Um, I thought all programming was functional. And you know, I hear that a lot, right? Like my program has, my language has functions because there's very few languages that don't have functions. And even these days, it's very few languages don't have first class functions, right? Like the, the kinds that you can pass around as values, you know, JavaScript, C Sharp, uh, Java has this now, Ruby kind of has it. Um, JavaScript certainly has it. So. The first thing we should probably talk about is just what makes 
like what about functional programming is is different and why isn't all programming functional programming does anyone want to jump on that um well it's definitely you don't look at it as working versus non-working right oh functional in the sense of it does something it, useful. it works <laughs> right <laughs> good point the language is non-functional kind of some implication there right uh, yeah i guess that's that's a good point um yeah this is definitely not like value judgmenty of like good equals functional bad equals not functional um okay what about the claim of like my language has functions uh therefore it's functional uh well we're talking specifically about languages that are geared towards like a uh, a pure function almost at an enforced level right okay so we should probably talk about terms as we introduce them and i i was bad i actually mentioned the term uh first class function earlier uh, we should definitely define what those things are and then we should talk about pure well when you say first class function you mean that functions are first class values right okay so explain so that that means that you can pass a function around as you would a string or an integer or any other value that your system can represent. Okay, so you can uh, you can declare them like you would a variable. Yep. You can uh, pass them into functions. You can create them on the fly, and you can return them from functions. Correct. So you can and say this thing takes two ints in a function, and then it returns a function that you know, returns an int or something. Right, like maybe does something with those ints and builds a new function out of it. Right. Right. Have, uh, does first-class function ring a bell to you, Aaron, in, in sort of your .NET work? Is that something that comes up, or is that kind of like, are they always called um, like delegates? No, actually, that was a really useful definition for me um, to hear that, okay, that's, what, that's exactly what first-class function means. And do you feel that C-sharp uh, embodies that? Uh, it's certainly not something that I need to use often in, uh, you know, in programming desktop applications, or that I have used often. But but you can, right? You can just like create a lambda, and return it from yeah, a function. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You can for sure. So you have a func type, and as long as you have that func type, you're you're pretty much good to go. Um, yeah. So C sharp definitely fall, uh, hits the bar of first class functions. Yeah, it, they're in there. Right. That's very true. And so, uh, okay, so we got first class functions, and then you said, Logan, that functional programming sort of languages uh, or languages that would consider themselves functional uh, emphasize uh, this other thing called a pure function. Right. I mean, so, it's it's kind of like you could build all of these features in imperative languages. Right? Well, okay, you're going to have to define imperative. Imperative being um, a language that is time-based, right? So do step one, then do step two step three so the, the order of execution matters and reordering the sort of statements in a, in a body of something could change the meaning of the the end result correct if you say set x to five and then set y to x plus one uh if you reverse those two you will have I mean, a bad day you know, usually the the spectrum we're talking about here is that you've got imperative and on one end and declarative on the other right okay imperative says what to do or does it say how? Imperative says how to do Imperative it. says how to do it, yep. Right, and declarative says what to do. Like, this is this is the shape that this data gets transformed in. Right, and a, and a good example of a very successful uh, declarative language would be something like SQL. 
Uh, not that every bit of SQL is declarative. Uh, there is some imperative bits in there. Right. But generally speaking, and, you say and what you want. You can want. hint it a bit here and there, right? Mm -hmm. But but more or less, you don't you don't ask it to use an index, right? You just simply put the index in there, and then your selects just know how to pick that up. Right. right. Now, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that functional languages are fully declarative, because they do have um, they do have some bits of the the how in there. Right. I you mean, know, it a is spectrum. a spectrum, right? Right. Yeah. And and SQL is kind of very far down at the declarative end of things. And I think most functional languages are a little more in the middle, where something like C is like very far down at the imperative end of the spectrum. And assembly is like probably the most imperative, right? right? So like like a, a truly pure functional language wouldn't only the only side effect it would have is that it would make your machine more. Well, I mean, right? I guess you could. Um, so we haven't talked about pure, actually. Yeah. Well, um, and when we're saying um, SQL is declarative, real quick, while we're still on the topic of SQL, are we talking about just a single statement? Because if you're writing SQL and you have, you know, you throw in a semicolon, then then all of a sudden you have a whole set of statements. Then it is going to matter what order those happen in. Oh, if you do a uh, delete from and then uh, yeah, and the insert delete from insert that's correct. And then, so know, yeah. obviously the order matters. Right. There. So on any individual SQL um, expression. So just on a single yes. statement. By and large, it's it's declarative, right? Because you're you're not telling it how to traverse the table. Um, mm -hmm. You're just sort of saying you're describing what you want in the end, and it's figuring out how to make that efficient. Or I mean, I guess it doesn't have to; it could be inefficient. But generally speaking, right. it, it figures out how it to does. do it. That's right. an implementation detail that's hidden, right? And and there are functional languages that try to be that, um, but I think for the most part, practical functional languages are not trying to be way at that end, but they are trying to get a little bit away. They're trying to emphasize the what, not the how a bit. Um, and and we could, uh, well, first, we, we've mentioned pure several times. We really need to define that. And then I would like to come back to map as an example of a declarative versus an imperative um, expression of a concept um, that I think everyone can will be able to relate to. So um, first off, let's define pure because we haven't done that. Your uh, so you you have a function. It has to take at least one thing, right? Um, does it have to take at least one thing? I'm pretty sure it does. Could it always just return a constant value. Uh, then you just have a constant value, right? Yeah. So generally speaking, uh, <laughs> yes, it will take some number of parameters. Also, that would kind of screw up other concepts we'll get into later, like the partial application, right? But uh, certainly a zero argument function is not very interesting. <laughs> right. And then it has to return something. OK. Right? Uh, um, most functions do, yep. And whatever it returns, well, whatever gets passed in cannot be modified. It, within the function. Right. OK. So you have a, f a pure function is a function that takes in some arguments. Well, optionally can take in some arguments. If it does take in the arguments, it does not change them. It doesn't alter them in any way. Correct. And then it returns some sort of value in the end. Right. Okay. And I guess another another uh, statement, and th this kind of goes with not changing anything, but any any given set of inputs always produces the same output. Okay. So that sort of goes into the whole given that if, if given the same inputs, you always produce the same output, um, you can't be relying on external things like a system clock. Like there's no way to have a pure function that's a random number generator uh, that relies right. on like system clock time. You have to use some kind of clever 
con constructs to produce those things in functional languages, right? Right. So in traditional languages, if you're just passing in um, your parameters by value, is that a pure function? Yes. Yes. Um, if it's by value, meaning um, so to use the, as opposed to, by to use the, sort of yeah, some languages have that distinction. So when we say by value, we mean basically a copy of the value is made such that if you change it in the function, no one outside of that function can see that change. Is that exactly yeah. so? It, yeah, and by reference would be if you do change it inside the function, then you're actually you know it's pointing to the memory address, and so you're changing the actual value. Right, and so that's sort of the traditional passing on the stack versus on the heap. If you pass on the stack, it's by value, and thus. Um, you can make changes and no one will see it. If you pass it by reference, then it's on the heap and you change it and everyone sees it. So yes, in a, a, a pure function where everything, if, in a traditional language, if you pass things in a way in which um, they're all by value, then that's fine, right? Uh, it, it's a pure function. Um, mm -hmm. The difference there is, well, the, the extra little bit is that it, you can't rely on anything that could change. You, you can't rely on any information outside of your parameters. So there can be no implicit yeah. state. You can't ever reference this. You can't reference this system time. Like a static function, uh, system.time.getCurrentMillies or whatever it is, right? You can't reference mm -hmm. those sorts of things because then I could run it five times and get five different answers. Sure, and in an object-oriented environment, you might be pulling back to a property, a base property on the object, and using that in addition to whatever um, by-value parameters you're passing. Yes, yes. And you're saying that that is no longer a pure function if it's referring to anything outside the function. Right, itself. because um, effectively all of the member variables on your object, on like your base class or your, your instance variables, are mm -hmm. implicit arguments to your function. And so you're, you're relying on them even though they're not in your parameter list, you are mm -hmm. actually potentially relying on them because if you reference any of them, they could change, your parameters don't change, you know, we, we, we call the function again with the same parameters, but now because the object state has changed, we get a different answer. Right. And you, so you kind of covered that when you said a pure function is always going to return the same value yes. as long as the same parameters and, are passed in. And that's in. the test. That's the litmus test. Um, uh, that's by far the easiest way to think of it. Is. And a lot of times, this actually comes from a um, pretty good like mathematical basis, which is like some people think is scary, but I think is actually very nice, is that you can view a function as a mapping from one set of values to another set of values. So you might have, you know, if it's if the function is add one, then we have a set of integers here, you know, that's the inputs. Uh, and then we mm -hmm. have a set of integers over here that are the outputs. Um, the, the fancy word you might hear for that is domain and codomain. Um, some people, when I grew up, I heard domain and range, um, but range has been basically deprecated in mathematical terminology, and it's a domain and codomain. So codomain's the output. Okay. And the co is important there because there's it actually kind of turns out as people have been working on this stuff for the last 30 years, there's a lot of co's. There's a lot of, um, in, in fact, for almost every like structure, there's a co-structure, which is the opposite of it. And that's, that's actually pretty interesting when you think about how you build stuff and structure things. Uh, is it fair to say opposite? Is that the word you're looking uh, inverse, for? Inverse, I think, would be better. Um, okay. So for example... Uh, well, let's not get into that. Uh, that's, that's definitely its own whole topic. Um, but okay. so we have domain, codomain, and a function is just something that goes from a value in the domain to a value in the codomain. And it, it describes that mapping. Yes. Right? Without um, having to splay out all the values on both sides. Right. Although, um, yes. And, and for every um, application of a value, um, of that function to a value in the domain, it'll produce a consistent value in the codomain. And every value in the domain 
is mapped to a value in the codomain. So there could be, let's say you have um, a list of uh, like an enumeration, right? Mm -hmm. You might have a, a two string kind of a function. So you go from a value in your enumeration to a string value. There's clearly more string values that could possibly exist than you will use in this mapping. So you, there's no like requirement that you, 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 you produce every possible thing in your set of things that could be in your codomain, like strings. But it is required that everything in your domain, your enum, is mapped to something in your codomain. So, so for example, you have um, you know, strings, and you take the length function. Well, that maps from the domain of strings to the codomain of ints. It's got to be some value you get out of it. Yeah, and every right. string maps to a value in ints, but it does not, you're not, you know, some people think that you have to like have a mapping that involves every single value on both sides, and that's not true. Well, that's impractical. I mean, your enum example yep. is perfect because it's impractical to cover every possible exactly. string. And, and, it's and it doesn't useful. necessarily <laughs> need to be bidirectional, right? It doesn't need to be bidirectional at all. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Sorry. Right. So yep. it's like you could have like an even or odd function. Right? Oh, yeah. You could map to Booleans. Exactly. And everything winds up either being true or false. And then it's exactly. Like, totally fine. You could have you could have infinity things in your domain mapped to. In fact, you could write a function that takes strings and returns true. <laughs> like literally just returns true. So you've, you've mapped yeah. every single string into true. Totally fine. Totally legit. What's not okay is to. <clears throat> let's, let's go back to your even and odd. That for even values, you return true, and for false values, you don't return anything at all. You return odd values, you mean? Sorry, did I say that wrong? Yes. You said false values. Uh, it's yeah. For odd values, yes. For odd values, right. you return um, nothing or null or throw an exception, right? That kind of a thing. That's not okay. That, that is not a pure function. And that property of for every valid input, you will get an output, that is called a total function. So that there's sort of this extra property of all pure functions are total. But um, if you hear people talking about um, total and partial functions, that's what they're referring to. So if a, if a function is always guaranteed to give you an answer back, it's total. If it's not, then it's partial. So anything that throws an exception is, is partial. Um, or something that like returns null when it has a declared type. Like if it's supposed to give you back a string, but then sometimes it gives you back null, that's a partial function. That makes sense. Um, sure. And you said that all pure functions Correct. are total. Yeah. Okay. Um, because otherwise, it couldn't be a mapping of domain to codomain. Because like some of the things in the domain, just like what would they put, like if you're drawing the line, like what would you draw it to? Like it, there, there's no value right. in the codomain set that's like null or yeah. question if, mark. If you're like you said, throwing an exception or returning, or, you know, whatever oh. language yeah. you want to talk exactly. about. But yeah. So that's the first okay. big idea of functional programming is that we are going to write as much of our program, we're going to express as much of our program as possible using pure functions. That's, you just start from there and say, what? I, I'm going to, as a base case, say all, all my functions are going to be pure. And, you know, in, in the cases where they can't be, uh, because there are legitimate times when they can't be. Um, which we'll get to in just a second, um, then, then we'll go ahead and, and handle that. But so what do we get for having, like, what is this bias? If we, if we, if we just say, I'm in C Sharp, or I'm in Ruby, or I'm in JavaScript, I'm going to just adopt this and say, all my functions are going to be pure, everything I possibly can. What, does, what do we get for that? 
headaches? Headaches. I mean, <laughs> certainly you can't just do things, you know, oh, I'm just going to like get the database connection here and then just write to it. Like, I mean, it's like we time travel back 30 years ago and we read our first object oriented programming book. And then, like, I'm going to go back to my C app and now I'm going to start using function pointers everywhere. Yeah, pass around structs of function pointers. Yeah. Mm hmm. And like those are kind of like objects almost, right? Mm -hmm. And if I do enough clever enforcement of everything, then they kind of can act like objects and do vtable lookups and all that. But I don't see anybody doing that today. Okay, so I, I, I get that um, the language, like JavaScript is not going to help you out here. But if we just write in this style, are there any benefits to doing that if we're not even in a functional language? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's still good things that come out so, of it. So what right? are those good so things? Like, if we were to enumerate those good things, what would they be? Things are easy to unit test. How so? You don't have to mock a bunch of external things, right? Because by definition, like, there are no external things to your function. I'm going to call this function. Here's some of the inputs. I expect these outputs. That's oh, it. We covered, um, we, this was implicit in what we said, but there's sort of an explicit thing that we should mention. Pure functions don't call impure functions. <laughs> pure functions can call other functions. Those other functions must be pure, or else the sort of the the initial top level pure function would not return the same result every time, right? So it's very yeah, elitist elitist broken. Broken. Yeah. club here of functions. Yeah, <laughs> very elitist. Um, so pure functions can only call other pure functions because then you're guaranteed to to right. have this property. Well, you're not you're not pure anymore if you're calling an impure function. Right. It right. like it sort of it's like a what's that called? Uh, they used to use this for. Like viral, right? Um, if one has this property, it's hard, then it it's hard infects to the rest. Find a word that doesn't have a pejorative tied to it, right? Right. right. Um, so, our, because everything is being, is being passed into your pure function as a parameter, you kind of just use those values. Um, you can call other pure functions if necessary. Those are guaranteed to have no side effects and not manipulate anything outside of them. It means that you can really just shove some values in the top, see what comes out the bottom, and it will literally match this value or it won't and and you know if your unit test is working like so that makes unit testing these things like super duper easy yep. mocks and stubs just like don't exist like the if if you were mocking something you by definition are probably not unit testing it right? i mean there's things that you can do like say like i don't feel like creating this like my javascript function takes another function and that function has some specific inputs and outputs that it deals with and I'm not interested in testing that. Right. I, I see. So that's I guess stubs are more likely than mocks here. Right. But I mean you don't even need like a fancy library for that, right? Right. At, you just make point, a function that literally returns the value you want and just pass right. it in. Here's an inline function, go. Yeah, just like right. lambda, boom, here you go. Yeah. Does does that jive with your feeling, Aaron? Like do you find that there are things that are easier and harder to test in say C sharp? So I was about to pop in, actually, because I wasn't totally honest. I said I have no experience since I have used uh, that robot arm mm -hmm. created in, in Unity. And so I have a small amount of experience writing some of this stuff. And I agree with the testing being real easy. And also, there's just a level of uh, clarity that comes with it. It's not totally easy to explain. But because um, your functions tend to be simpler in, in some way, it's, it's really easy to look at a function and kind of see what's supposed to be happening. And so... Um, it forces you to code in a in a clear way that might not necessarily come um, if you weren't using functional. Gotcha. Because, um, like, do you do you attribute that to like? Uh, we should sort of explain that Robo Arms is this library for a little little bit of a frameworky thing for Unity, 
the game engine, and it sort of uh, moves your logic into one place, makes all your functions static, uh, or the equivalent of static, and then the data gets passed in, it just sort of processes it, and then, like, it gets kind of passed through this, like, machine that just kind of, like, crunches it and, and changes its form and passes it along. Yeah, Robot, Robot Armors is a Unity tool that kind of encourages functional programming in, in Unity. And right, and, and so if we were to kind of, like, give a sense of what embodies this, like, pure functionness in a language like C sharp, I would say like static functions. Just make everything static. And, and don't ever write a static uh, member variable <laughs> for the static class. Right? <laughs> right. So if you do that, you um, probably are very much on your way to having pure functions. Like it's not guaranteed, but that's a that's a healthy like step along the way. And and so you felt mm-hmm. that kind of that has like Maybe if it's hard to pin down, like what specific bit of it is having this effect, but it kind of just feels a little easier to reason about, maybe. Um, yeah, exactly. And I just, you know, I have limited experience with it, but for sure, um, when you're dealing with complicated concepts, it, it kind of forces you to to uh, break things down into into simple pieces. Okay, and maybe only do one thing at a time, kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't do too much. Well, I mean, you could potentially do a whole lot in a in a totally static function, but usually you tend to break things up into smaller pieces, so you're not passing these big long parameter lists right. that don't all need There's to be like there. There's like a natural like gravitation towards a little bit more single purpose, a little bit smaller, more focused kind of functions. So we've got, and also I found as well that uh, it tended to because of that, you tended to have um, things that you reused a little bit more often. Okay, so instead of it being like these 15 lines out of these 120 lines in my function would be really useful as their standalone thing, they just kind of already were their standalone thing? Yeah, because they ended up... I, I don't know that I always ended up with more functions, so I don't know that we're that I'm necessarily uh, representing it perfectly. Okay, but... now, you bring up more functions. I think it is a very good point to be made that in functional programming, you are very likely to have a lot more functions than you're used to in like traditional OO. You have smaller functions and many more of them. And that, to some people, that's a big deal. It's scary or um, feels confusing. Um, I, I think, though, for programming in a generic sense, you don't see that as bad as you would think. Okay, so so you don't because you feel there's benefits. I'm just saying I've heard this expressed no, uh, no, many no. times. I, this... I, I'm saying, like, I don't I don't even think it winds up being like this. Oh, that many more? Like the, you took this tree and turned it into a bunch of sawdust of functions, right? Okay. I, I don't. I don't think that's quite how it plays out. And, but if coming from an OO perspective, that's hard to see, right? Because like, it's how like, else would you do it other than by having ten times more functions? Well, it's because of you know how many objects does your application have at any given moment oh, in sure. an OO app? A right? lot of classes. And yeah, it's like, generally. Wait, yeah. now I've got to write like I'm going to write map functions, and then I got to change like this thing into that thing, and. Okay, so it seems. Um, so the point I think you're making here is that it seems like the only way to get this done is to have a lot more functions and take your big functions and make them small functions, um, and thus increase the count of them. And you're sort of just like it feels like you're just taking ten things that are stacked vertically and laying them out horizontally. And like, what have you actually gained by that? But right. you're kind of saying that maybe in the process of laying them out horizontally, you see that three of these things are actually the same. And could just be reduced into one thing. It's funny because we don't normally see it this way when we look at an OO language, but like beam properties in like an OO application, right? Like you get like these get functions and these set functions, right? They're really methods, but I mean, sure. they're basically like functions, right? There's like an implicit this that went along with it. Right. It, if you pass this into each one of them, 
then the method turns into a function. Yeah. Right. And I mean, an object in a functional world is basically like a, a map, right? It's a value pair structure. Okay. And basically what you've gone and done as part of making your POJO is you created a map, written an independent function for each key that your map supports. Those are your getters and your setters. It's sort of this like specialized API to get and set things in your map. Correct. And in, in the functional world, that. that simply doesn't exist. So to, right. yeah, definition here, a POJO is the plain old Java object, which is a Java okay. object with no uh, methods that manipulate its contents, uh, other than just getters and setters. Usually they okay. don't, anyways. Uh, there's also POCOs, which is the plain old CLR objects, which is the .NET equivalent. Right, and so there was sort yeah. of a movement in the, I don't know, mid-ish 2000s towards, uh, away from these like very, very heavyweight um, Java objects, Java classes. Uh, and the, I, mm -hmm. I see Poco in, in C Sharp as well, so I mean it's, it exists there as well. To to more like uh, they often are called value objects, where it's just data. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So if we talk about building with value objects, the getters and the setters um, really don't serve much of a purpose there. Like Logan's saying, they're effectively it could just be a uh, like a hash table or map kind of a thing, and it would be the same. Right. And so it's like once gotcha. you once you you start running functions not to like capitalize first names and then separately capitalize last names. You write uh, a function that capitalizes a value in a, for a string, right? Right. And then you can apply it to these keys in this map, for example. Right. And, and so in a lot of ways, you actually wind up with fewer functions. Than you... Because they're more generally applicable. Right. Right. So that is a, uh, that is a very good example, actually, of a... Um, kind of operation that would require like specialized functions per object um, that could maybe be applied more generally if you have just hash tables or maps or something. And that's something that languages like Clojure get a lot of mileage out of. Like Clojure is a Lisp that runs on the uh, JVM and CLR. And it basically does everything with lists and maps. <laughs> like, you know, does so a huge amount of its work, it, just it, those things. If, if you're a software engineer and you've learned like more than one language in your career, you could probably pick up the list syntax in about five minutes. I mean, it's <laughs> well. not to say that you're going to go and write these most beautiful, elegant Lisp programs now and that you've suddenly mastered Emacs all of a sudden. It's, it, it's it, but you would understand the syntax enough that you know, you, you could make some simple expressions with it pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, right. the, the the syntax seems really intimidating, but is ultimately like the the harder stuff in Clojure is like understanding these other concepts. But uh, right. Clojure is an example of a language that gets a lot of mileage out of very simple structures. In the same way that I would argue that Ruby does, that Ruby gets a lot done with just arrays and and hashes, which is their their map structure. Well, backing it all up to where we started on this. Um, Basically, so when I was switching from OO to, um, again, my minor experience with functional programming, we talked about how you kind of take this tree and you split it up into a bunch of small pieces and, kind of, you know, the vertical stack layer mm -hmm. horizontally. I'd say that's how I started and I didn't really, you know, it just, everything just took longer, but I kind of was in it for the long haul and stuck with it. And absolutely what we talked about is what's happened and where, I, you know, you lay it out and it's like, well, actually, I don't have to do things this way. 
because of this new setup, I don't necessarily need all these different horizontal pieces. And so it ended up being more efficient. And in the same way, I think that's where some of the clarity comes from. Rather than having this big tree, I have a bunch of small little branches that in the end was, to put it simply, less less code than what I had originally. Okay. And um, sort of what Logos talked about is, is that in general, the idea is that you're able to reuse the same uh, functionality, the same concept of like, do this thing to this string, but now you're able to do it to strings that are in a lot of different contexts, um, you know, in hashes, uh, in different kinds of data structures. And that brings us back to what we talked about earlier, which is this sort of, uh, so unfortunately we've been talking about maps as uh, dictionaries in C-sharp or uh, hashes in Ruby or, um, you know, sort mm -hmm. of that kind of structure. There's also a th operation called map, which in uh, C-sharp in link is called select. Um, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's relatively new, but yes. Um, so the idea behind a, a map operation is you have a collection of something, you know, an array, for example, and you want to, mm -hmm. and you have a function, and the function operates on the kinds of things that are in the array. So let's say that we took our, our length example from before. So we have a, an array of strings. We can turn the array of strings mm -hmm. by, by having a function that knows nothing about arrays. It just knows how to go from a string to an int. So it's length is the function, right? So given a string, mm -hmm. go to an int. It The the list provi or the array provides this facility for running that function on each element in the list or the array. I keep saying list. Um, and then you end up with an array of ints. So you can go from an array of strings to an array of ints because you have a function that goes from string to int. And the a function doesn't have to know about it. So in Logan's example, your capitalized function um, or, or whatever it would be, we could run that also on the mm -hmm. this array of strings and get an array of different strings. Right? The interesting so, thing about that operation, is, so this is like a really good example of something that's declarative, right? Because uh, normally how you would do this is you'd like, you create your array, maybe you'd already know the size of it because you're making a copy of the old array or something. And now you're going to do a for each on the original array, right? On each iteration, you're taking that value and stuffing it into the to the the new, the new array, right? Yeah, I think for each is kind of the early, earlier right. select. But, but, but yeah. every time you do that, you're basically writing code that says how to iterate over this list. Yeah, and, and actually, so you said for each is kind of the earlier select, but I actually would argue that for each is not select because select only does one thing. Select always applies the function to each value and produces a new a list or you know a collection of, of the result of that function. Whereas mm -hmm. for each can do anything like you could. Yeah. For each gives right. you a lot more. Okay. So you don't know if, if I see a for each, I'm just like standing back and I kind of like look at the structure of someone's code and I'm scanning through it, like in a, a pull request or something. And I see a for each, I, I know that we're iterating. <laughs> so let's say I see a for loop, just like four. I can look at the parameters and I could at least tell if we're iterating, if it's a fixed iteration, like because you can have a for loop that never terminates, right? That's perfectly possible. You put true in the middle. Complicated parameter. for loops, right? Right. So I mean, you can you can recreate a while loop. I mean, I've seen four. Have you ever seen four colon colon in the prints or semicolon semicolon? Yep. The four. And they basically wrote a while loop, but mm -hmm. as a four. Yep. That's a, that's the forever I loop. I have not, but okay. That's the forever loop. Yeah, it's it's the same thing as writing while. Um, and so yeah. like you can make anything from a while loop to a a very specific iteration. Like you could you could clearly implement this map operation using four. 
but you could do a whole gigantic like the set of if we were trying to like list enumerate the set of things you can do in a for loop uh we're gonna be here for a while right because mm -hmm. it's effectively infinite but yeah four is is really really powerful you don't you can't tell from looking at it exactly what it's and do. i think that's and really important yeah. to um point out that there's a trade-off between power and what you know about it so when you when we see select or map as it's called in other languages uh, we know mm -hmm. what that's going to do. If I give you a list of 10 things, you are going to apply this function 10 times, and I'm going to get back a list of 10 new things. And if I know what the function does, I know exa I can exactly predict what the output is just in my head. Say so I'm going to map this function over this collection of things and get back my new collection. Now, um, in a way, we're kind of going back to the idea of, I mean, this is dating a little bit, but the, there used to be go-to um, lines in code that, again, tons of power if you can just go to certain line are you familiar with Absolutely. that function from like basic yeah or, you, there's tons of power there but it's very very difficult makes code really difficult to read right and there was um a huge debate in the 70s about whether you should use go to or whether you should use uh the sort of the stack frame idea that came about in c where you push a, mm -hmm. a, a location onto the stack and then you jump you still have to go to but you jump to their location the other function and it does its thing and then it promises to jump back when it's done and and that structure mm -hmm. means you can't do certain things, right? Um, some recursive stuff gets more difficult, or you know, you you have a stack that you can have a stack overflow. You can't have a stack overflow if you know, like if you're not doing this structure, you uh, can never you've got have those problems. Coupling, right, and your ability to do uh, reuse later. Um, you could you view it as coupling. You could also view it as now you have less coupling because now I can call an arbitrary function and I know it comes back, and that function doesn't have to like know about me. So it kind of the devil's in the details there, I think, a little bit in terms of like whether that's a benefit or not, which is why people argued about this for you know many, many years. This wasn't like an open and shut. Like today it seems laughable that it wouldn't be an open and shut thing. Of course we want to use structured programming and have our functions actually return <laughs> to where they were called from. But what you're giving up is you're giving up power. By, you know, when you give up GoTo, you're giving it's up true. power. You're giving up fun uh, functionality. And I mean, you could you can write better code. Well, not better code, sorry. More efficient code with GoTo than you can without. Yeah, like in the strict sense, you have more power. And if you if you are capable of using it uh, well, uh, then you, you have a higher, at least theoretical, like power level. Uh, uh, I've yeah, been you're told sacrificing in clarity. Windows which... code base, there was at one point a statement in there that says, I can't believe I'm using a go-to statement. That was, oh, but that they was, that it was the go-to label. That was the name of it. Oh, I see. Because I guess like they just could not figure out how to represent that without go-to. And it was a go to. C and they, you know, and so they did. Either way, it's not, that's not as much of an argument now. I don't feel that we're, you know, we, we want clarity in our code. There's not this big fight, especially in business applications, which is what yeah, I'm primarily people, doing. And yeah, I think definitely. we're talking about, um, it's not all about, oh, this needs to run, a, you know, a millisecond faster. It's all about maintainability mm -hmm. and clarity. So um, in the same way, we could argue that today's version of that is, like you said, is sort of moving from general purpose for loops, general purpose like iteration constructs, to uh, like, can we solve these problems? Because like clearly um, structured programming, this idea of jumping in and returning, was a sort of standardization of a thing that you were probably already doing with go-tos. Like in many people developed that style and then it was like, well, can we just have the the compiler do this for us? And that's where C came from, right? Yeah, the the whole concept of structured programming that, I mean, that's not, C wasn't the first to implement it, but C embodies that very well, that, that concept. And so for me, things like map 
or uh, is a particular incarnation of what for could be because it represents a certain kind of idea. I want to transform uh, all the elements in this list or you know collection into a new collection of the elements, and that comes up so often. It definitely deserves a name and and a top level like conceptual thing. In the same way that a for loop is a conceptual thing that you don't have to really explain it to someone. Uh, we don't have to recreate the idea of, have you ever written some code where you had like a label and then at the bottom you like go to back to the label and then you, sometimes you don't do that because there's a condition and it's like, are you describing like a for loop? And they're like, yeah, like, you know, we don't, we don't have to describe that structure. We just know what it is. Right. Um, and that's yeah. useful because it's so common that there's this like higher level of that. That's sort of, I think, being understood that like maybe we should be talking at, at that layer. And so we have things like uh, map. That's a very common one. Another very common one is filter. So if I see something that says filter um, in C sharp, this would be where, which I actually think is a much better name than filter. Um, I've always <laughs> really disliked the name filter because it feels like it's filtering things out, not filtering things to keep them like generally, but anyways, yeah. Um, so filter uh, me, or where I've never heard of the term before for in functional, but Filter and where it sounds similar. Filter is the traditional name for it. Okay. Um, and, and filter, the idea there is you provide a function that goes, so let's say we have a, a list of A's, whatever A is, you know, whatever type it is, or list of T's. Uh, I have a function from T to bool. If I r apply that function to the list, I will get a, uh, you know, a list of bools. And the filter function will only keep the elements that return true. So if I only want the even elements, I can do mod 2 equals 0. Or if I only want ones that have length greater than 5, or only ones whose customer count is current, or whatever, or delinquent, or you know, whatever property you care about. And so we can do a, a filter operation. That's very common. And then the last one, um, Logan, do you want to talk about reduce? Um, traditionally, it's called fold in the um, kind of FP universe, but reduce is sort of the, the way it's known in JavaScript. And in um, C Sharp, this would be aggregate. Yeah, and I don't remember what the Java stream. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Um, basically, aggregate is actually a really good name for it. Reduce works too in some cases. Uh, you're going to take usually a a list of some kind, and you're going to produce a single value from that. Okay. And you, you, you and take a function that basically has, I believe they call it like an accumulator, or an aggregator, or something, mm -hmm. and then the item that's in that list. And then you produce a new aggregator based on that. A new, like I would say aggregate. Aggregate. Right? The thing that you're kind of like, like for example, you could take a, a, a list of numbers and your aggregate reduced fold function is plus and your initial value is zero. And so it would take zero, take the first thing out of your list, it would use plus to combine those to produce a new number, which would then be the input to the next uh, invocation of the function, which would take the second element in the list you run plus on it with the result of the previous one. And it just keeps going this way. And in the end, we would get the sum of the list. But we could also swap a different function in there. We could we could uh, pop in append and put an empty uh, array. And then at each uh, it, at each uh, invocation, we would just append the next element to that array. Maybe a string would be a great. Or string. Yeah, yeah exactly. Give it like yeah, an empty string. Just... And then every time that you turn a value, you take the string that's in your list, and you add a space to it, and pack it on to the end of your current string, right? And now you've and, just joined things the end. together as yep. words, or whatever. Yeah, so we could express join as kind of this like reduce or fold type operation. This is not something I'm familiar with. So is count this in the same way an aggregate function then? Like getting a count of number items in the list? 
if you're passing it, it a list is count an aggregate or is it not? Um, you could get the count of the list by doing an aggregate with a function that just adds one to the aggregate each time. So it starts at zero, okay. and for each element in the list, it, it ignores the actual value of the element, and it just adds plus one. Yeah. Code made of one. Okay. Yeah. And so you could write a little lambda that says, you know, just taking the aggregate, return that plus one. And, and that would be a way okay. to produce count. Absolutely. I think, Dave, when you say... Right, but count is already... Count say already a lambda, you basically need like an inline function. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. We should define lambda. Lambda means a function that you define sort of as the program is running. So the idea is, you know, you can... Uh, wh where you would go to specify the function uh, to use in your your aggregate reduce function, fold function, you can either like use the name of a function or you can just write your function right there in, in like inside the parentheses kind of a thing. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, and functional languages tend to have, I mean, generally they use a lot of lambdas and so they tend to have like a very nice lightweight syntax for it. Although I have to say C-sharp syntax is, is fantastic for lambdas. It makes writing those very easy um, to pass around. So there is, there is some vocabulary here we could touch on. Uh, okay. All of these, all these functions we just talked about, map, filter, fold, um, they all share something in common, and that is that that function that you pass to them. So they're all functions that, as one of their parameters, takes another function. Right. And right. And what's the name of that? Well, in, in imperative languages, we might refer to that as like a callback. Um, that might have some implications behind it, but in in functional land, the term for that is a higher order function. And it's higher order because it's not just a function. It's a function that operates on another function. Right. Kind of a thing. Right. So, so higher order okay. functions, that's a good point. Um, you will definitely run into that as a term. And that's all it means. A function that takes another function. Uh, one of the interesting things about using these different kinds of functions, right, is like if you want to test a, a for loop, that gets a little bit tricky. There's a bit more setup involved in that, right? Because now you have to like create a list, and then you have to look at the output of that list. Okay. Right? If like map is kind of already tested for you, so you don't need to test it. Maybe you had to write your own map, but there's tests for that now, and now it's tested forever in every case you use it. Once it's tested, you're good. Basically, right. is what right. you're saying. Yeah. And then the actual function that you're passing in, that one is much much simpler. It doesn't need a list. Doesn't need any kind right, of doesn't even structure know about a list. or anything. It just needs the, the value that's passed in, and you look at the value that's passed out. So it's a function that just goes from an A to a B, and you test that, right. and you know that that works, and then you don't have to then test it in combination with map, filter, reduce, etc., right. because you know that it works in isolation, and therefore it will work in combination. Right. Um, and this yep. this is the composable nature makes of functional well. applications, right? Yeah, I, I would say higher order functions are a prerequisite for almost all of the techniques that generally get used in functional languages. They almost all rely on higher order functions. It's incredibly common. And as a result, this composability of being able to write the small parts kind of in isolation and then just kind of glue them together, you know, things that don't know about each other can just be used together, is what is one of the core like things that gives rise to this reusability. And so if you're not in a language that does that or has a lot of that kind of stuff, it, it can be very difficult to have a sense, like an intuition, about how it would be possible to get more reuse out of your functions than you currently do. Right. 
Um, do you, you think that's fair, Logan, coming from kind of going through that transition? I think so. Um, one of the things that you can do is like there might already be functions out there that you can use, right? Even even in yeah. the imperative languages we're referring to, it's like how many of them have a parsent, right? Have a, a have parsent. A what? So it takes like a it oh, takes parsent, a string yes, and then absolutely. like produces an integer from that, right? right? And it's like if I already have that as a built-in function, and I've got a list of strings, and I want to produce a list of integers, right? I can call map, mm -hmm. pass it parsent, pass it the list, and now I'm done. Right? Right. And, and there's no real way I can screw that up, which is the, the beautiful right. part about it, right? Uh, yeah, we should, we should make the distinction here that um, functional languages, uh, functional, these functional techniques don't have anything to do with dynamic or static typing, but many uh, of the guarantees that functional programming advocates might throw out there probably do have some root in the static typing side of things. Um, there's certainly a lot of benefits you can get just by doing JavaScript or Clojure or uh, Erlang or Elixir, you know, some dynamic uh, functional language. But uh, there's kind of a whole set of things that we only get through um, static typing. So the whole, like, you can only screw it up bit, like in C Sharp, using your parse int with, uh, with a select on your list of uh, strings only works because it is only like sort of guaranteed to work because the type system won't let you put in a function there that doesn't match the right type signature. Like it'll yell at you. And if you try to put parse float or something or, you know, length. You right. get yeah, before we scare off all of our Rubyists and our Pythonistas, like <laughs> you got to understand, uh, David mentioned this much earlier on uh, outside of this podcast, but uh, the, the type system that you've probably seen Java and C Sharp is like the Fisher Price, my first type system. Of a thing. Yes, that's a very good point. And it's not anything like the type systems that are available in functional languages. Right. Your F sharps, your Elm, Haskell, PureScript, those sorts of things. Right. Instead of instead of getting in your way, it keeps you from stumbling over yourself. And so like imagine if you could keep a type system and all the guarantees that came with that, but now you don't need singletons and you don't need you know flywheel patterns and the visitor pattern and all these other crazy things. Those, those... Yeah, basically every single one of your patterns in the Gang of Four Patterns book is just tossed out the window. Right. Like they're just, they all become use functions. Right. <laughs> so almost every single one of them. And here we use functions that we passed when out. When I was learning this stuff in JavaScript, I quickly learned that like any problem I could solve by introducing more functions. Okay, I, I have this module and I kind of want some settings for this entire module. I know, I'll turn the whole module into a function. And then I can just pass <laughs> it stuff, and you know, now it has these values it can work with. And it just acts like a function, and, and all the tools you have for working right. with functions. And if, I, if I want like, a different settings for that, then I'll just call the function again with new inputs. And you know, that new one I get out is like the new conf newly configured module. Right. Yeah, so the big point here is that the, uh, the, side of the, um, sort of the uh, type system in most functional languages, certainly all the mainstream ones, is quite a bit different from your C-sharp Java type systems, or C++, and is much less in the way and much more your helper and something that you're grateful to have. So let's go on to, um, there's a couple other points we want to hit here. Um, functional programming languages, while not always um, enforcing this like at a compiler level, like certainly if you don't have a compiler, you can't do this, um, but there's this concept of 
side effects. We already said that we try to do almost everything as pure functions, which then naturally means that we are going to have some impure functions uh, because we can't do everything pure or else nothing would ever happen. So side effects, there's this misunderstanding, I think, that in a pure functional, in a functional programming language, you never do side effects. And that's not true at all. Of course we do side effects. We have to. Why, why would you need to do side effects in a pure functional language? Can we define oh, side effects real good, quick? Good I might have missed that. Uh, why, why don't you define find side effects, Aaron? Or give us give us a go. Oh, I have no. I don't know what a side effect is going to be. Probably uh, um, something like when a function happens, something unrelated to that actual function gets changed as well. Uh, okay. Let's yeah. Say, I mean... um, let's say Aaron, you've got like your C sharp object, and maybe it's a God object, but maybe it's just a little object too. And I'm going to call the calculate right. method on it. And calculate doesn't take any parameters, and it returns an integer. And maybe I have some reasonable expectation that it's not a hard-coded integer, so it's going to do something. Right? Is, can okay. you tell me for certain that the only thing that that calculate method will do is produce a new integer and not do anything else in the system? Um, well, most likely no, because if it's done nothing any parameters, it's probably operating on itself or, or using its own, you know, so there's probably some this and there to get the values it is calculating. And it might be reading from all of those, but there's nothing to stop it from writing to anything. Right. It could be, it, it could be reading and it could be writing and there's no way, I mean, without looking at the code, well, you, don't it, you don't know. It jumps into a singleton or it was passed other objects upon its construction or something. It could go and poke those things too. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it could do it could do anything. You're absolutely so. If right. we were to give a simple definition of side effects, I would go with um, that you can tell if the function was run zero, one, two, like you can tell that it was run. So if there's any way of determining that this function has or has not been run, there was a side effect somewhere along the way. Because if it's a pure function, like if there's a function that takes in two ints and returns a plus b. There's nothing in the system that will allow you to determine if you've ever run that function before, like later in the program. You can't know. There's no like state anywhere that has been. Other than like flags, though, how are you how are you going to tell? Is the, there something that's what I'm saying. You there? can't tell. That's what that's okay. what means. There's no side effects. <laughs> but if, if a side effect, what what's a side effect other than just having a flag somewhere? Um, so it's any any mutation of a uh, state somewhere. Like a variable that's holding on to something, you know, like a shared global variable kind of thing. And when we say global variable, mm -hmm. that's, you know, people in OLAN like shriek back and horror. Um, it's actually very common to use global variables in functional programming because you have very, very few of them um, on the order of just a handful. Um, and they tend to have uh, like a big data object in there that is itself um, doesn't change a whole lot. So, you know, you could use, you could use objects as, um, Certainly, singletons as uh, shared global variables, right? And those those crop up in O languages. Um, but the idea here is, if you can tell that you ran the function, then there was a side effect. So if you touched a file, or uh, you know, wrote to a buffer, yeah, touched the database, the database. certainly, um, created a connection to the database. Any of those things are side effects, and they certainly are necessary because without them, we can't. By definition, we can't do anything that anyone can notice, which means we didn't do anything useful, right? We made the box warm. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the processor, yeah, the fan turned on. If you're on. not doing anything, you know, to the actual file system or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So okay. all programs, functional or not, start and end with side effects. They start with, you know, user input or network traffic or whatever. Um, and they end with some useful thing, you know, again, network traffic, that kind of thing. And 
uh, that is so functional programs definitely have side effects. Uh, they just don't have uncontrolled side effects. Well, so well, why would so did we maybe I spaced for a second? Why would we want to have side effects in our functional language? Why don't we just make everything pure? We just said then you can't ever do anything well, what, other than making the box. What does what does doing anything mean? Like let's be, let's be whatever is useful. Writing to a file, writing to the screen, playing sound. Uh, changing another browser, you know, redirecting your browser somewhere, you know, anything like that. Any I/O, I/O is all side effects, and so programs are, you know, most programs we care about are about showing the user something and getting input from the user right. to affect. I guess something. we could even say that like exiting with the return code is still kind of like you're still affecting the world somehow, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that that's sort of at the weakest level. But yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty undeniable that we need side right. effects. We absolutely do. And they are not you just, bad. just uh, use the term uncontrolled and controlled? Or are you going to go yes, over those Yes, we should talk about well? that. So, okay. so side effects are absolutely necessary. They are a good thing. We cannot do anything useful without side effects. I love side effects. Side effects are my friend. I, I party with them. They're awesome. The only time you're going to hear him say this. Now, there's this downside to side effects. They're kind of hard to reason about. If you mutate something in the middle of your function, now you have to kind of keep a mental model of have I called it one time or two times or three times or a million times? Has something else called it behind my back? Like every kind of you know race conditiony, data mutationy, order dependency th thing comes from this idea of there's a bit of state somewhere that's getting clobbered and changed and has to be in a certain state, and that makes things very difficult to test. That makes things difficult. You know, again, I, I feel like I have to load a lot of that program into my brain in order to reason about functions that are doing side effecty things. And of course, those functions call other functions that call other functions, and their side effects all the way down that chain. And this can get pretty complicated, right? Yep. I, we've probably all experienced this, right? Right. Yeah. Sure. And, and, yeah, and we said, and pure functions don't have that property. Pure functions are very easy to reason about. I can look at the five lines of code in the function, know what it does, because it's by definition not touching or relying on anything outside that function. So right. well, the side effect functions. Quick, this is this isn't actually a, like an official term, but this is something that gets used in culture a lot, and that's you used it three times now. Uh, reason about. Oh, okay, good. Right. Yep. I mean, uh, th this is something that's going to come up a lot. Is a lot, a lot of people in imperative lands want, like you'll hear that they want elegant code, they want beautiful code, they want readable code. That that emphasis is not as strong in the functional world. It's reasonability, right? You're, Which basically means I know what it does. I know what I, I understand. Some degree of certainty. What this is going to do, right? And that may not mean that might mean that it's still got you know a ton of glyphs in it, and you know it's kind of hard for especially a novice to go and take a look at but um that's that's not really the objective here right the objective is for a competent engineer to be able to come in and understand the intent and the output of a particular program right it's sort of like by looking at this code do i understand everything that's going on here or do I have to like go look at, at a whole bunch of other code and understand like a much bigger system right. there's not as much emphasis on aesthetic Right. Um, I, yeah. yeah, that's that's aesthetic is opinion, right? So um, reasonability is a little more objective because you can say like everything I need to know is in these lines versus in other languages, there's sort of implicit stuff. 
that you can't possibly know just by looking. You know, it doesn't matter if you're super. You wrote the language and you're the like, the most experienced person in the world. You still can't know everything that this function does by just looking at the function. Uh, let's say if it's a Java function or a C chart function, because you would have to know what every function it calls does also, because there's no guarantees about that. Do those. we get to talk about the magic um, number? Um, hold on, real quick. Let's let's talk about um, that on the stack immutability, real quick. So the. the the benefit of of side effects, and when we say controlled, what we mean is, um, in many languages, the the language itself gives you a way to know. Yes, this does side effects. No, this does not do side effects. And so, basically, the language can tell, give you big thumbs up and says that's pure. I, you're safe here. Like your your um, assumptions about what pure things can do is good here. And then over here, hey, this does side effects. So you know. You, it's not that you shouldn't use it. It's that you should, uh, you know, put on your <laughs> more detail-oriented hat and really kind of think about what's going on in here because this is the place where there is the potential for all kinds of fun uh, bugs and, and problems to be hiding because of dependence on order of operations and, and things like that. And are you are we saying like in the IDE, IDE you're seeing that? What do you, when you say it's getting flagged? What's happening? Yeah. So um, this what, good point. Um, this is um, something that only a static typed functional programming language can get you. Uh, and, and the most uh, mm -hmm. famous of this would probably be like a Haskell. And in Haskell, your type, in your type, the fact that IO happens as part of your, you know, that there are side effects, um, which is represented as IO in Haskell, is in the type. So this is a function that goes from string to IO of int, meaning like somewhere along the way, there's going to be a side effect that will then produce an int. But there is a side effect involved here. And it doesn't tell you what side effect. Um, there's languages like Haskell, uh, no, sorry, Haskell, <laughs> PureScript, um, which is sort of inspired by Haskell, that is more specific. It says, okay, this goes from string to int, and it has a side effect of console along the way, or it has a side effect of uh, Ajax. Right, so the and idea you, you is you can like, make your own side effects, right? And you can come up with your own categories of side effects. And so if I see something that says string, to an effect of type Ajax that produces an int, I probably go, hmm, so that string is probably a URL, and the int that comes back is like the response code of the URL. Like I have a sense about what this function is doing, and I haven't seen a line of code about it. Because the type system is describing that it has an effect A, and sort of the kind of effect that it is. And that is a degree of certainty. And then of course I can't mix that in in the middle of a chain of pure functions, right? It won't let me. It'll it'll enforce that, hey, that's a, um, so that's a controlled side effect. In C Sharp, you call a function, it could do something. Um, that's an uncontrolled side effect. There's no way for you as a programmer to say, I don't want to allow side effects here, and I'm okay abiding by that myself, but I don't want any to like, accidentally slip in here because you know I forgot or I used a library and that thing doesn't abide by these rules or a, a coworker just didn't realize this was a no side effect zone. And So it's, it relies on your discipline as a programmer when you have uncontrolled side effects. Okay. If you have controlled side effects, the compiler, you can say, I want to allow side effects here. So in Haskell or PureScript, you could write every single function in declaring that the defects are allowed here and basically program as if it was C sharp. Like side effects can be anywhere, no problem, just go at it. I mean, it. that's just kind of like and, making everything like a void pointer in C++, right? Well, I mean, it's not that bad because, I mean, you still have your types and stuff. But you're, what you're saying is I'm explicitly stating um, it's okay for there to be side effects here. And if you just go and you do that everywhere, then you have all the full capabilities that you have in like C Sharp, where, hey, just here, I just wanted to do a side effect because that's what I want to do. But it, I mean, it, it just sounds, you know, obviously silly to hear you talking about it like that because you're just throwing away the benefit 
of the pro it's right. program there. And, and if you had a way in C Sharp, I mean, like, it's been talked about over the years of having like a pure kind of uh, annotation that you can put on your um, your function, like an annotation. Right. You put you in a function. Opt in a it sounds like this is an opt out. This like is an opt out. Everything is pure like, by default, and then you opt out into saying it's okay to have side effects here. And that's a nice default because then, of course, you go with yeah. what is natural and you gravitate towards pure functions. And then you have this sort of nice property of your system um, that it tends to be easy to test and, and reusability mm -hmm. kind of naturally falls out of it. Um, so controlled side effects, you don't have to have a statically typed functional language to do this. You can just be disciplined. And a lot of JavaScript libraries these days, um, your Reacts, your Reduxes, your CycleJSs, those sorts of things, they all... Uh, embrace this idea of we are going to have functions that are side effect functions, and we're going to have functions that are pure, and we're going to keep those separate. And of course, they they come together at the at the boundaries of our program because we have to do real stuff. But we're going to like make an effort to think of things as either pure or impure. Um, and and again, that's not like a value judgment that like one is good and one is bad. They just have different sets of characteristics. And why use an impure function when a pure function will do? You know, you you get these nice benefits. Of it. And, and Lisp works kind of in a similar fashion, right? Like Lisp is not a pure functional language. Oh, oh, right. right. It does not force you to be pure. You can just have impure functions. Right. But but generally speaking, try to keep your stuff pure. Yes, and that's so it's by convention and it's based on program programmer discipline. But it's certainly doable. Right. So make sure and, I understand because we're kind of linking back into pure and impure functions here. If a, fu if a function has a side effect, it's no longer pure either. Correct. Because yep. yeah. We're talking about touching something outside of the function, and so, okay. Yep. So the last little kind of part of all this is that as you go down this path of like, okay, we're going to have pure functions, we're not going to, we're, we're going to tuck the side effects kind of in the corner where we can, you know, understand them better and, and use them when necessary, um, is that ten, you tend to end up with data structures that are immutable, meaning that I can hand you a copy and you can do things to that copy, but you will never affect my copy. So one way to do this is to make uh, a literal like copy of the thing every time. Like, here's my list of 10 numbers. I'm going to make a copy of it. I'm going to hand it to you. You now have your list, and you can't possibly screw up my list. So there, that in this way, there can't be um, sort of unintended side effects. Like, if an object passes a, a value, you know, a collection to another object, and the other object holds onto it, and especially if they're on different threads. But you don't have to be on different threads for this to happen. But as you're going through doing your stuff with your what you believe to be your own copy of that object, it could just change out from underneath you. Right? That, that certainly is a possible thing. Um, with immutable data structures, every time a change is made, it produces a new copy of the data structure. So you both have you know, a reference to the same object in memory, and the other object wants to, you know, say you're in C sharp, the other object wants to make, uh, add something to that list. Uh, they get a new list with the extra object. And therefore, you're, you still have like the same 10 items, and they have the new one with 11. Uh, it's important to note that you conceptually get Yes, that is correct. Yeah, that is a conceptual thing, not a literal right. thing. So it's like, man, I work in my imperative language, and I've got thousands of records in my lists and stuff, and you're telling me if I just want to add one somewhere, I've got to go make a whole duplicate of all that data? Yeah, which would be horribly inefficient. Right, and it's instead... What the these functional languages tend to do under the hood is they keep a reference to the original list because we're under the contract that it shall never change, right? And it says right. I am different from that list in this way, and you know here's this extra element at the end or whatever, kind of like how our source control systems work. 
yeah, in fact, uh, Git is a immutable data structure <laughs> in in most most, most of most its immutable, right? Like, I mean, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's it's very destructive to go back and clobber like prior commits that have been shared. Right. And L let's say we're not going to do destructive operations. Uh, it, it's actually a right. uh, sort of a grow only, you know, immutable data structure, and this can be done fairly efficiently. There's a whole class of things called persistent data structures. This is the basis of like Clojure and Scala's uh, collections, and they rely on basically tree structures where when you make a change to something you need to change a couple of the nodes but almost all of the nodes stay the same and this allows you to get very good um, sharing between a bunch of variations of a piece of data um, without having to like make a full copy every time. There's also uh, memoization as a benefit that falls out of this as like a performance benefit. Okay, why don't you explain memoization? Memoization is the idea that like I'm going to store the output of a function and next time I call this function, I'm just going to, if it's got this set of inputs that I've used before, I'm going to return this like cached output that I have. And that only works because it's pure. Right. And if it's impure, you couldn't guarantee that. Right. And, and obviously, this is one of those things that's kind of like the JVM, like you'll never know when it's doing it. Right. Um, like it might come in handy sometimes, and the, the data, the input set that it's working with might be too large to reasonably depend on or whatever. Right. But that's a safe optimization for either a library or a language to make is to automatically memoize things. Right. It's like if I I'll, if I take this set of inputs and it takes me five minutes to go get you the output, well, next time you call it, wouldn't that be really awesome if I just like I already have that? And for practical reasons, not a lot of languages auto memoize very much because it can uh, be a huge memory leak. Like if you ever call that function again and we memoized a bunch of values. Uh, that's not very good, but it is generally fairly trivial to throw on a little memoization wrapper around a function that has the same signature as the original function, so it's identical for all intents and purposes with the original function. But now, when it's called the second time, it just you know with the same input, it just returns the value right, right away, and that is very easy to do because you have these pure functions. So immutable. When you tell you about immutability and sort of an emphasis towards immutability, that again is a thing that you can do in a traditional imperative language, a C sharp. What that looks like is if you want to write in this style. So, so like the the first step towards like a functional expression in a traditional imperative language would be start writing all your functions as like static functions that only rely on the inputs, you know, the parameters that are passed in, and always returns a value. And then also. Uh, Structure your objects as these value objects that only take in their inputs in their constructor and only have getters. Or if you can do like a read-only kind of a public field, if your language supports that kind of thing, that would work as well. So there, once you construct one, it's constructed and it's done, and and you never like change it. You to, if you want a variation of it, you have to construct a new one with some of the values from the old one plus the modified value. Have you ever run into that, Aaron? Those that kind of structure in sort of the value object world? Um, no, I haven't. Uh, but I don't actually look at all other people's codes. But it sounds like what you're talking about, though, is you're, you're running into that a little bit of a nightmare situation where because the language is supported by default, you you are uh, getting really efficient if you're doing it that way. Right, you, you, you're, you it's are on you making to do copies it. of the object every time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, there you are doing the sort of like copying every time. Yeah, because, because you're trying to, you know, it's the language that wasn't really designed to work that way. And so you're trying to make it fit that mold, but it's it's not uh, right. It's not, not a great, great fit. fit. And I know you had brought up um, a point earlier that sort of like um, why 
why don't just do this? Why don't you just do this in an OO language? Like, if, if these ideas are great, why don't we just do them in you know C sharp or Ruby or whatever? Right. That was one of my questions. Yeah. And and I think we've we've gotten into that a little bit. Um, certainly, um, the language providing like auto generating that object with the the constructor that only has getters for you as a very like F sharp has a thing where you can create a record, and the record basically is this class with the constructor and the getter properties. Uh, the getter only properties, but it's like one line to define okay. that, and it, it defines equals for you and all the stuff that you could do in C sharp. But man, it's a pain in the butt to do. Um, and then you can use libraries that give you the sort of immutable data structure thing. And some languages just use that as their primitive array list hash, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so you don't get that if you're doing it yourself. So that's one reason to use a functional language is that it's geared towards doing these things in a certain way and so obviously it's set up it's got very nice defaults if, right? but if you're stuck in the java dungeon these concepts can still be really helpful right like yes. you can still yes, write things like i've been agree. writing functional style in javascript for a while and it's been immensely helpful yeah and javascript is actually pretty good uh, in languages that are imperative languages, JavaScript is very good at adapting to a functional style. So if you want to pick, if I was to pick a immutable, or a immutable, a imperative language to do FPN, um, it would be that or C sharp um, for sure. I think those two are the nicest. And JavaScript uh, on the dynamic side is very flexible. And there's some very nice languages like Facebook has a um, has an immutable library just for these immutable data structures. So um, mm. I think we're definitely wrapping up here um, in terms of time. We've kind of gone through like the big picture concepts, and maybe next time we could come back and talk about a little bit more of the like specifics incarnations that uh, make things nice in like a more of like a static functional language, like a Haskell-y kind of thing. Because there's some very nice guarantees that that gives you that would be very very difficult to get in a um, or or just straight up impossible to get in a sort of traditional imperative language. All right, well, um, thanks. thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. We'll see you next time.